welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. In October 2017, the Society was fortunate to have Philip Britton, visiting professor of King's College in London and senior fellow of Melbourne Law School, attend to present his paper, Trouble with the Neighbours, Construction, Disruption and Damages. The events, which took place at venues around Australia and which were kindly hosted by a variety of generous sponsors, drew many industry professionals who gathered to hear Philip's insights into this issue. And for those of you who could not attend, this episode records Philip's first presentation in Brisbane. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us. Just over 20 years ago, Diana, Princess of Wales, died following this car crash in Paris. As others have commented, to look now at pictures of the crowds massing in London to express their grief shows how much life has changed. No one has or is using a mobile phone. My partner and I were on holiday in Cape Cod in the USA, so we must have heard the news from live TV or newspapers. What astonished us in restaurants or shops in Provincetown was that Americans, overhearing our all-too-English accents, would approach and interrupt us, saying things like, we're just so sorry for your loss, meaning Princess Di. It was touching and obviously sincere, but it assumed a level of intimacy and emotional bond between individual British people and their royal family, also of course yours, which felt overstated. It also anticipated the astonishing heart-on-sleeve outpouring about the princess's death, which evidently took even the royal family by surprise. However, on Cape Cod, the only proper strategy was to thank each well-wisher for their concern and politely go along with whatever their assumptions were about us and our relationship with the princess. A paler version of this process has been going on while I've been in Australia. Knowing that I teach in the construction law field and have written about building standards, many people here have wanted to talk about the Grenfell Tower fire in London. They've said how terrible the event was and asked about what may have happened and about the British responses to it. Here I feel on slightly firmer ground than I did about Princess Di although I'm still anxious about whether my credentials for expressing any views are really adequate. This is in part because the gulf is a very wide one in the UK between one university teacher, even in a centre of construction law within sight of the Palace of Westminster, and the government circles where these issues actually get discussed and resolved. As a result, I feel I know no more than any intelligent reader of a good newspaper would. Being British, doesn't qualify me to have better insights into the disaster, let alone being more affected by it emotionally, than it did when Princess Diana died on the last day of August 1997. Well, 
This talk isn't directly about Grenfell Tower. On this, those of you who are at the Sockler Conference in July will have heard my good friend and colleague, Matthew Bell. He spoke thoughtfully and from the heart, questioning whether the law at present, in the UK or in Australia, can offer real protection to building users against the risk of injury or death from fire, and what might be needed for it to do this important job properly. I know that the Lacrosse Tower fire in Victoria had already started anxiety about the fire risk posed by sandwich cladding on tall residential buildings. It seems that this concern has now gone nationwide with a report and proposals for legislation from Canberra. But there is one other aspect of Grenfell Tower which forms the lead-in to the main topic for my talk. It's to remind you that its occupants, now its victims mostly, were periodic tenants, paying rent monthly to the local authority, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, their landlord and the freeholder of the whole block. So the whole building was public sector housing for people of modest income, with most of their rent in fact paid for out of general taxation via Social Security, housing benefit. In landlord terms, each tenant had a legal estate in their flat, but this was an asset which in effect had no capital value. There was nothing they could sell, sublet, mortgage or transfer to anybody else though they could acquire a long lease at a discount, which some occupants had already done. Their rent was variable upwards in line with directions from central government to all local authorities. However, unlike almost all private sector residential tenants in England and Wales, most of those at Grenfell Tower had security of tenure for life, transmissible on their death to a family member. Unlike in a strata title or comparable system here down under, public sector tenants have no real say as a matter of law in the management of what we lawyers call the common property, including the exterior and structure of the block and all the shared services running to and from each flat. It's unsurprising in this context that the borough as landlord must be in the firing line as primarily responsible in law, not just civilly, but perhaps also criminally, for dangers to the resident's safety which derive from the state of the building. Those familiar with the evolution of the law of tort can see how easy it would be to argue that the tenants were in law the neighbours of their landlord in order to impose a duty of care. Of course, the borough, or rather its insurers, may in the end shift some of this responsibility or liability who those who to those who had the job of specifying, installing, or failing to inspect the cladding, or more generally, were responsible for fire safety in all its aspects. This also brings in the third-party tenant management organisation, a commercial operator from the private sector, which manages Kensington and Chelsea's public housing portfolio day to day, almost 10,000 dwellings, or rather did, until the borough ended its contract last week. Did installing that particular form of cladding on the tower in 2016, 
the form of cladding now, as I'm sure you know, withdrawn from the UK market, comply in its particular form, <coughs> excuse me, particular form as part of the exterior system of the building uh, with our building regulations, the equivalent of the building code here. The dramatic results of post-Grenfell fire testing on examples of the cladding have fueled, almost literally, a view that the type of cladding was the real problem. But this may be a form of convenient technical scapegoating. However, the review of fire protection legislation which is going on now may conclude that our mandatory standards are not demanding or precise enough. And the wider public inquiry on the fire and its aftermath is already underway. When a fridge freezer caught fire on level four, the photos show clearly what happened up the exterior of the building, just like in the La Crosse building in Melbourne. The usual design approach to fire protection in units within a tower, stay in your flat, it's designed to keep you safe there long enough for someone to rescue you, rescue you was fatally wrong and the inadequacy of the single, single stairway combined with no sprinkling system meant that there was no safe escape route. It seems as if many of those who died were killed by the toxic smoke created by the polystyrene foam core of the cladding sandwich as much as the fire itself. There's a parallel with modern aircraft which use lightweight plastic materials in the cabin to save weight, creating just the same smoke danger as at Grenfell Tower. However, certification of aircraft types requires proof that the whole aircraft can be evacuated in about 90 seconds with multiple exits, inflatable slides, and so on. In addition, the single point responsibility of the aircraft manufacturer makes it far easier to check which planes have which plastic in which bits of the cabin than it has been now retrospectively to try and inspect high-rise buildings all across the UK for particular types of cladding. I've not seen the terms of the standard tenancy agreement from Kensington and Chelsea, but those of you who are legally qualified and familiar with the English law of contract may remember this case, Liverpool City Council and Irwin from 1976. It was about a 15-storey tower block of flats where the rubbish chutes were regularly blocked, the lifts were often out of service, and the stairways unlit and dangerous. The House of Lords had to make sense of the text of the tenancy document. This was so one-sided that it appeared to impose no maintenance obligations at all on the council as landlord for those aspects of the building. What does the council expect us to do? Parachute into our flats, asked one tenant. The law lords took the tenant's side, agreeing that the printed standard terms were evidently incomplete. They couldn't be the whole contract. The City Council must have some legally enforceable obligations given the way the block was designed in return for the rent that each tenant paid, modest though it was. At the minimum, 
it, must, it was essential that each tenant had a right of access to their flat and to the services provided via the common property. But did these rights carry with them any obligations on the landlord beyond protection against the risk of physical injury in the common property? Well, the court held that, the, that some duties to maintain were essential to make the tenancy work at all. But these were not absolute, in other words, we might also call them end result obligations. Instead, they were phrased in terms of taking reasonable care in relation to the tenant's means of access, including lights in the stairwells and the availability of the rubbish chutes. As we'll see, this notion of reasonable care, so familiar from negligence within the law of tort, has an application more widely than just between public sector landlords and their tenants. Back in Liverpool, the tenants lost on that issue having argued that the landlord's duties were absolute. They brought no evidence showing that the council had been negligent, although it looks as if they could easily have done so. Happily, we've moved on since then, so that this is what the UK government website now says about public sector tenants' rights. Oh, there it is, good. Your council is responsible for making sure the structure is kept in good condition gas and electricity appliances work safely and that shared parts of a building or housing estate are kept in good condition. Uh, fair and reasonable though these rules seem, and they're clearly way ahead of the arrangements that were in force at Liverpool in 1976, uh, like tenancy documents do, they tend to look to repair, that's to say remedying disrepair which arises over time, rather than to the state of the building itself at the start of the tenancy or the consequences of later work on the building. At Grenfell Tower, as everyone knows, the key event seems to have been installation of the cladding in 2016, long after the tower had been first occupied in 1974. As the post-fire photos show, and you've just seen one, the structure of the block survived astonishingly intact. When there's the eventual and inevitable fight about legal liability at Grenfell Tower, defining what obligations should and did rest on the landlord uh, may be central, just as it was in Irwin. How, and now I get closer to the central theme of the talk, how are the same issues also relevant to a construction project being carried out by a landlord if this impacts negatively on a tenant? Starting to think about this issue, it seemed obvious to me that the legal landscape within a landlord and tenant context was bound to be different from that between otherwise unconnected freeholders. But would the substantive protection that the law gives a tenant be equivalent to that which an owner might expect from another owner in similar circumstances. Of that, I was frankly unsure. And then by a miracle, a recent case appeared in the Chancery Division of the High Court in London, which provides some answers. Here's the building. Uh, this is 14 to 15, you can see 15, 14 is at the other end of the building on the right hand side, Carlos Place in Mayfair. 
built in the early 1920s in fine uh, neo-Georgian style. Our claimant, plaintiff if you prefer, has a tenancy of the ground floor of the left-hand side of the building seen from here, uh, plus uh, the basement. His tenancy is for 20 years, and we're about five years in when the problem starts, and he's called Timothy Taylor. He has a commercial art gallery, upmarket, modern art, with an impressive, serious, and pricey stable of artists. Above the gallery, there are floors, several floors of flats. By 2012, they're all empty because the landlord has an, the overall landlord of the building, that is, has a plan to remodel, refurbish, and let out new flats to the sort of person who can afford or thinks they deserve an address as smart as this. Mayfair House, and you can see Carlos Place curving in the bottom right-hand corner of the, of the slide. Mayfair House is close to the west end of Oxford Street, uh, Grosvenor Square, and only steps away, and you can see it marked on the Google Maps there, um, the Connaught Hotel, five stars, in effect, next door. Uh, and the Connaught has a restaurant with two Michelin stars, so it's, it's a place of serious gastronomy. The house itself, uh, in Carlos Place, um, is on the edge and was once part of the Grosvenor estate. This still includes an astonishing 120 hectares of prime real estate in Mayfair and Belgravia, owned by the Duke of Westminster. Uh, here's a photo taken in 1988 of the current Duke. Uh, he is now, that's to say this year, the third richest person in the UK and the world's richest person under 30. When work starts on Mayfair House, uh, above Mr. Taylor's gallery, he's immediately unhappy about two aspects of its impact on his business. The first is construction noise during the working day. No fun for him and his staff, but also off-putting for casual visitors to the gallery. His second complaint is that the gallery has become less visible to passers-by. This is because there's scaffolding up the whole facade. Here's a sequence of photographs taken while the work was, was ongoing. As you can more or less see from this shot, which is looking south, so that the, uh, the, the Connaught Hotel is just sort of behind the scaffolding there, and we're looking south and the road curves. Um, a pedestrian can still get to the gallery, which is at the other end here. It's still got, it's got a sign, so we know it's there but has to navigate this sort of tunnel of timber hoardings. Uh, these enclose the space between two parallel set sets of scaffolding along the front of the building, one right against the facade, and the other, which is the one you can see here, on the edge of the pavement. The scaffolding goes the full width and height of the building and is draped with plastic sheeting, which you can just about see here. What our London satirical weekly Private Eye would call full and frank discussions take place between Mr. Taylor and the landlord. These lead nowhere. And in 2015, the tenant starts legal proceedings. 
The scale of the litigation risk to both sides still fails to knock heads together. So in April 2016, Timothy Taylor and Mayfair House comes to trial. It's before Alan Steinfeld QC, a Deputy High Court judge. Nine days in court, 10 witnesses, including four experts, and a judgment running to more than 18,000 words. On any test, it's a serious piece of litigation, and the loser is going to have some deep wounds to lick. The uncertainties about the law and its application to this project really centre around two of the express covenants in Mr Taylor's lease. One gives the landlord the right to reconstruct the entire building, which must on any test, I think, include the lesser right to remodel floors one to five and add a duplex on the top floor. The other promises Mr Taylor as tenant quiet enjoyment of the two floors leased, the ground floor and the basement. Are these two in conflict? And if they are, how can they be reconciled? A traditional conveyancer would say that a quiet enjoyment covenant has nothing to do with either tranquility or pleasure. It's just a conventional way of saying that the landlord and those claiming under him or her must respect the tenancy and the tenant's right of occupation which derives from it. The judges in Irwin, the case about the tower block I mentioned earlier, all accepted that the local authority owed each tenant such a covenant, but this wasn't enough to resolve the issues about access to each flat. However, there's case law on which Mr Taylor's counsel relies, which suggests that this understates the protection that such a covenant gives. The speeches in the House of Lords in the London Borough of Southwark and Mills in the late 1990s make an important point. Where premises are let for a specific purpose, in our case running a retail business, the landlord must do nothing which undermines the tenant's ability to carry out that purpose. This is sometimes expressed in a different way, that the landlord may not, or rather must not, derogate from his or her grant. Uh, this is, in my view, no more than smart lawyer's language for don't give with one hand and take back with the other. But the scope of this no derogation obligation, implied by law into every tenancy, it seems, overlaps with the express quiet enjoyment covenant in our Mayfair House case. Moving one step forward then, our gallery is, uh, owner is able to point to cases following mills. In them, a landlord of a block undertakes work in order to implement a duty to repair. Along the way, he causes noise, dust and disruption to one of the tenants. The tenant could rely on these two covenants, linked covenants we should call them, to stop the work as planned and could require the landlord to rethink the project so as to cause less disruption. So we're not talking about a black and white situation. Just as John suggested in the introduction, the law's aim is in some way to reconcile the landlord carrying out his or her obligations with the tenant's expectation that he can run his business without serious interruption. So it's very close, it seems to me, 
to the balancing act the law of nuisance tries to maintain between one owner's right to build on plot A and its impact in noise and loss of amenity on the owner of plot B alongside. The real test is, and you can hear a direct echo of Irwin, has the landlord taken reasonable precautions to minimise the impact of the work on the tenant? The word reasonable is, of course, the giveaway. It's not an unqualified or absolute obligation, so what's necessary or sufficient in each case will be highly fact-specific, so can't easily be predicted in advance. What's the application of these principles to the Mayfair House situation? It could have been a key difference that the landlord didn't have to build on top of the gallery. It wasn't a duty to repair situation, but the exercise of a right in the lease. Did that make any difference? The judge pointed out that in a duty to repair case, the uh, tenant gets some benefit from the landlord carrying out work under the lease. But where the landlord is choosing to remodel other parts of the building, our tenant may get nothing. The project will simply allow the landlord to make an enhanced profit. In that sense, a tenant like Mr. Taylor may be in a stronger position to complain of disruption, but the judgment doesn't really explore this distinction very far. That's largely because, the point already on the screen, Judge Steinfeld held that the landlord at Mayfair House had not taken adequate precautions to minimize the project's impact on the gallery, so liability was established. There were some evidential disputes which had to be resolved along the way. How much did Mr. Taylor know about the remodeling project before it started? This goes, no surprise, to the rent payable. For this already had, if, if this had already factored in the negative impact of the landlord's planned project above the gallery, the tenant could hardly also expect remedies from the court. The landlord argued that Mr. Taylor knew when he took the tenancy in 2007 that there was a plan to do work on the building's upper floors and that this was reinforced in the to and fro negotiations at the first five-yearly rent review in 2012. The judge was unconvinced that at either stage Mr. Taylor knew enough detail about the project to have lost his right to complain about its negative impact on his business. Anyway, the rent went up by a third at the first rent review, so that argument carried very little weight. Now then, to remedies. As you've heard, the extent of the landlord's obligation was to take reasonable measures. The tenant didn't and couldn't argue that the landlord had no right to build at all above the gallery. Nor did Mr Taylor ask for an injunction to stop the project completely midway. But he did ask for the court to direct if liability was established, how the rest of the project should be managed in order to reduce its impact to a tolerable level. The judge, oh, that's very strange. Things are coming in an odd order, forgive me. That should be the next one and there it is. The judge in effect rubber stamped a deal offered by the landlord about how noisy work above would be managed into the future. The judge agreed that the scaffolding wrapping the building did have a disproportionate effect on the gallery. This conclusion was easy to reach, as the original design for the scaffolding would have been much less massive. 
but he was unwilling to make an order requiring the scaffolding to be removed, redesigned and re-erected. This would be, he thought, too great an interference with a project which was, or so he was told, already two-thirds complete. This conclusion uh, therefore led to consideration of damages for what and how assessed. Uh, Mr Taylor's initial claim included actual loss of income from reduced business in the gallery. The impact on sales had been less, he argued, because the gallery was less visible from the street. But the figures, unfortunately, since the project started, didn't back this up. His sales had actually gone up, they'd actually increased, so that went nowhere. It wasn't the end of the story, however. Uh, to interfere with quiet enjoyment is to interfere with the intangible benefits a tenant can expect. So, just like the tort of private nuisance between freeholders, landlord and tenant law protects amenity and offers remedies for unjustifiable and significant diminution of this. This means, of course, putting a figure on something inherently not directly quantifiable, but the court had chartered surveyors uh, numerously on hand as expert witnesses, uh, suggesting a wide range of possibilities. The judge opted for damages defined as 10% of the current payable rent back to the start of the project and forwards as long as it continued, which meant, in fact, into uh, 2017. Some comments then on the significance of the case and its lessons for the future. For the case to have got to court at all, used the scale of resources which it did and racked up the legal costs on each side, a total of over a million pounds, we must conclude that both, both parties were confident or were advised that they should be confident, not quite the same thing, that their view of the law was correct. It's true that the case law authorities, such as they were, looked to be in Mr Taylor's favour. But it will never be easy to predict the result of applying the test of reasonable precautions to an individual project. Equally, the choice of remedy, of what remedy is appropriate, and how to assess damages is equally fact-specific, mobilising a wide judicial discretion. As always, it's much riskier to be a claimant or plaintiff than a defendant, so Mr Taylor's determination, if that's what it was, to go all the way to trial, was significant in giving us the benefit of the ultimate judgement, which the losing landlord didn't appeal. The result is, of course, infinitely more costly to the landlord than if he had, as the tenant asked, granted a rent reduction at an early stage in the project. How could such a negotiated and amicable outcome have been made more likely? Perhaps if the lease made ADR possible or mandatory for such a dispute. We can't be sure but such provisions look like sensible inclusions in a lease, although rare in practice, at least in, in my experience. They might reduce the risk of the parties falling out big time with implications for their ongoing relationship. We know that the court itself would have attempted to bang the parties' heads together during pre-trial, but that evidently led nowhere, although by what precise stages the law report doesn't record. The judge clearly thought 
that a rent reduction would have been a sensible way of deflecting the gallery owner's unhappiness. Uh, this was increased when Mr. Taylor learned that the landlord had paid the owner of the gallery next door £50,000 for a licence to use its airspace, airspace alone, notice, for part of the scaffolding for the work at Mayfair House. Uh, here's a photograph of the scaffolding protruding into the airspace above the building of number 13 uh, next door. Our building's on the left, and this is a, a rather strange single-storey building. It was once a, a squash court for one of the big houses in, in Grosvenor Square behind. Mentioning airspace uh, may remind some of you of a high-profile dispute about a tower crane in Melbourne reported in July of this year. Uh, the Jannies from Elwood, south of St Kilda, were living next to a construction site a three-storey apartment block going up next door. Uh, this is a, a, a rather wide-angle picture of their home and the crane in question from the Age newspaper. The developer approached them uh, and told the Jannies a number of things about his plans for the project. He said, uh, we shall include a tower crane. It won't carry loads over your property, but the jib will, will oversail your home uh, and needs to be free to swing with the wind uh, when it's not in use. The Jannies in return said, well, uh, we're anxious about the safety risks posed by the crane uh, and about its impact on the amenity of living, living while the project is going on. Um, would you be kind enough to pay for us uh, to move out temporarily? Uh, this the developer initially refused, saying, no doubt accurately, that not to use the planned crane would extend the duration of the project. He then went ahead and installed the crane anyway. So next step, obvious, you might think, Jannies threaten legal action if the crane is not removed. The developers often offer them $3,000 as a one-off payment for a license to oversail, uh, which at that point they're starting to get rather good legal advice and of course they say no. They start legal proceedings and the developer then ups his game a bit, offering to pay for the whole family to move out, cash limited at $20,000. The family, getting into the spirit of all of this, um, then make a counteroffer of $106,500, um, which would buy, a buy the developer a license to oversale, but limited to business hours. Uh, which, of course, technically would do him no good at all because the, the weather veining that's essential with a tower crane is, by definition, outside business hours. So, understandably, he said no to all that. And interestingly, all of this to and fro is, of course, reported publicly in the law report of the case itself. So, uh, we, I, I, it's not special knowledge that, 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 that that's all recorded, as it were. Um, and interestingly, as a consequence, um, the, the judge... Justice Reardon says a number of things. He says um, the law is on their side. He reaffirms the principle that a party whose crane jib is left free at night to oversail from a construction night next door does commit the tort of trespass, which any law student could have, could have told them, you think, that that's true even if the incursion has no actual impact and may realistically threaten no damage or injury. And a prohibitory, meaning a negative injunction, is the primary, or put another way around, prima facie remedy, backed, of course, by the serious sanctions of contempt of court. So the Jannies hadn't disentitled themselves from getting an injunction by refusing to accept any of the developer's offers. The developer had, the, the judge said, 
behaved very high-handedly by going ahead knowing that they objected, the developer thus took the risk that their conduct would turn out to be unlawful. So it lost the chance of asking for an award of damages instead of an injunction. So no surprise in a way, once you've seen those, those intervening steps, the plaintiffs get their injunction and costs on an indemnity basis. As with many other construction cases where a neighbour dispute ends with an injunction, uh, we can only guess where the extra cost of completing the project without the original crane, above all the delay to completion, will end up, perhaps passed on to the eventual buyers of units in the building. However, a visit to Elwood last week showed that work was continuing on the new apartments. It also showed that a different crane was now in use. Now, you can see very clearly, no longer a tower crane, but a crane with an angled luffing jib. Neither the main jib nor the much shorter horizontal counter jib oversails the Janney's home at all. But the case is a real warning to developers and builders using cranes on restricted sites. Negotiate a license with the neighbors unless, not the case in Victoria, the local law empowers them to ask the court to sanction a short-term easement as part of the necessary access for the project. Back finally to London and Timothy Taylor and Mayfair House. The case clearly illustrates the force of a landlord's express quiet enjoyment covenant in a lease, implied by law anyway, together with a no derogation from grant covenant. Together they give a tenant a degree of protection against disruption from the landlord's project, whether this arises out of a duty to repair or a right to build. It's not absolute, as it requires reasonable precautions on the landlord's part only, but the landlord appears to retain liability for all members of his or her project team, even where he or she may have imposed specific instructions on the project manager or main contractor to protect the tenant's interests in the design and or execution of the project. I should come clean at this point that I had a subsidiary reason for exploring Timothy Taylor and Mayfair House uh, to write about it as an entry for last year's Society of Construction Law essay prize in the UK. Success in that competition meant that what had meanwhile become a longer paper was then published by the SCL in London and is downloadable from its website. Uh, you can get access to all of these published papers if you're a Sockla member by logging on to the SCL International website, which is in some way different. Um, but give me a business card with your email address and I'll happily send you a copy of the paper if you're interested. And the paper, in fact, includes more Australasian material than the published London version. Uh, we, then, we return finally to the starting point. Uh, was the uh, case worth exploring and writing about? My hunch was correct that cases about disruption from, from construction between tenant and landlord do get resolved in a legal landscape which is different from that between freeholders. But the law's wish to reconcile the competing interests of claimant and defendant is very close to the process which goes on between freeholders in a nuisance claim, where one landowner claims against another. The choice between remedies is also very similar. What's different, by contrast, 
is that in a landlord and tenant case, there's rent, which can act as the benchmark against which to measure loss of amenity via an award of damages. And what the tenant knew or didn't know about a planned project by the landlord is legally significant in ways no equivalent negotiations between freeholders are likely to be. Further, such a dispute arises in the context of a relationship in which landlord and tenant are usually yoked together for at least a few years to come. So a fight in court may have an impact on how they get on in relation to other issues in the future, like the next rent review. The happy ending, if it is one, at a Mayfair house, is that the scaffolding was all gone earlier this year, and when I last walked past in February, work on the newly remodeled flats above the gallery was at the fit-out stage, so the noise problem was also over. All very different from the end of 2016, when wearing my mystery shopper hat, I visited the gallery to have a look at the current exhibition. I asked the person on the desk how they were getting on with the noise from above. Her wrinkled nose told all. What finally of the relevance of this case and its issues to jurisdictions in Austra Australasia? The underlying common law principles are of course almost completely shared between our legal systems. However, many of the issues within landlord and tenant law which in England and Wales are still left to the judges via case law are regulated down under by statute. This brings in a familiar additional element, the variation, the interesting but sometimes aggravating pattern of variations between each Australian state and the two mainland territories. Here's the local Queensland version of the Covenant for Quiet Enjoyment in Residential Leases. It comes from the Residential Tenancies and Rooming Accommodation Act in section 183. It says, the lessor must take reasonable steps to ensure the tenant has quiet enjoyment of the premises. So a very familiar term, pair of words in there. Uh, and it also says the lessor or lessor's agent must not interfere with a reasonable peace, reasonable again, peace, comfort or privacy of the tenant in using the premises. You can see how closely this echoes the principles of law the judge laid down in the Mayfair House case. Mr. Taylor in London would also have been significantly helped if he'd been able to rely upon the Queensland compensation rules. Here's what the tenant of a retail unit can expect for disruption by or for the landlord. Extracts from the Retail Shop Leases Act 1994, section 43. The lessor is liable to pay the lessee reasonable compensation for loss or damage suffered because the lessor or a person acting under the lessor's authority takes action which substantially restricts or alters access by customers to the lease shop. There it is. Or takes action which affects the flow of potential customers past the shop. Mr. Taylor again. Or causes significant disruption to the lessee's trading or doesn't take all reasonable stops steps to prevent or stop significant disruption within the lessor's control. As, as these statutory examples suggest, functionally speaking, the result here gets very close to the English common law, as in the Mayfair House case. Uh, this I find a pleasing discovery and an encouraging conclusion to end on. <laughs>